This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. <clears throat> and now, a message from a white man. So I, I think it makes no sense whatsoever as a uh, white citizen of America to try to help black citizens anymore. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's no longer a rational impulse. And so I'm, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to back off from being helpful to black America because it doesn't seem like it pays off. Like I've been doing it all my life and I've been, the only outcome is I, be, I get called a racist. That's the only outcome. <laughs> it makes no sense to help black Americans if you're white. Uh, the, the, it's over. Don't, don't even think it's worth trying. I tell you, man. White folks just always thinking they're doing so much for black folk. I tell you, well, we won't be missing your help whatsoever. Come on, fam. This is Profane Faith. We have enemies within our country. I think it's a combination of demonology and psyop. The citizens are going to rise up and become deputized. I have always supported President Trump. I I like the way he talked. He reminded me of most men. Joe Biden last night in the debate, he's, it's like he's not even a human being. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represented extremism. Can you imagine repatriating all the black Americans that Pat just spoke about to Africa? Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, or even out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. And look... We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'll be your host, Daniel White Hodge. All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back. Welcome back to another week of profane faith. I welcome uh, everyone, uh, except for the haters. I'm always knowing there's some haters on here listening, trying to gather up stuff. They have no life. They are the definition of losers. Um, And uh, the ones who are just listening because they have nothing better to do, the Karens, the Kevins, the Beckys, the the folks that are filled with hatred. But uh, nevertheless, I welcome the rest of y'all. And um, anyone who's new, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, It's your host, Daniel White Hodge. Uh, If you haven't had a chance to listen to other episodes, by all means, please subscribe, like the currency of podcasting here in season seven. I've been recording since 2017 uh, so there's a, there's a nice little archive of episodes um, back there. So check them out if you get a chance to. If you want to hear more about me and my story, um, my uh, story is episode one. So there, you can check it out and see what's up. Um, well, there's a lot to cover, um, but I, I definitely want to get to my guests. I don't want to have, you know, white racist men taking up all the oxygen. I definitely had to comment on um, the... Uh, 
you know, the the creator, what is his name? Scott Adams, uh, the creator of um, Dilbert, which I barely read that comic to begin with. Um, but most of those cats are all racist old white men anyway. I mean, without even having to go into it, right? I mean, it, it's... And even and and I don't want to use the excuse, right? Because oftentimes people say, "Well, that was just a different era," you know. That was a, that was their time. That was you know the way they lived. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's not uh, get lost in the <laughs> let's not get lost in the racism right here. Let's, let's not lighten the load. Uh, the reality of it is, is that this is what this person was thinking the whole time. If you haven't heard the whole rant, I'm sure you can find it. I just just showing a little portion of clip. Uh, of course, your boy Elon Musk comes out, doesn't denounce anything. He um, is actually calling the the racist or the media that is racist. Uh, he said in a tweet, um, uh, let's see where he says, for a very long time, U.S. Uh, media was racist against non-white people. Uh, now they're racist against whites and Asians. Same thing happened with elite colleges and high schools in America. Maybe... They can try not being racist. Um, and then Chris Ferguson comments along that chain and thread and says uh, Adams's comments weren't good, but there's an element of truth to this. It's complicated. Mainly we've learned uh, leaned into identity with predictable results and power today is complicated. We were on the right path with color blindness and need to return to it. And Elon comments exactly. Um, so, <laughs> folks, uh, fam, uh, you know, all the things that are wrong with this um, are listed in that tweet there, uh, right there. Just colorblindness, colorblindness alone is, is horrible. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't work, right? To not see color, to not see, like, I can sort of see the, the intent behind colorblindness ideology. Um, but it, none of it ever works. It really just diminishes um, ethnic identities. It diminishes uh, ethnic minorities, uh, BIPOC folks, and it lifts up white supremacy, right? Because it, it begins to set a standard for what is right and what is uh, the, the correct path to take, right? Uh, and then, of course, Elon's just, he's just out to lunch, man. He, 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 he gone. But he been gone, right? I mean, if you listen to his history and study what uh you know what he's done and you know him taking tesla and uh just his own south african roots and whatnot so no i don't i don't trust anybody like that um but this type of ideology is ingrained into a lot of supervisors uh it's ingrained into a lot of presidents of universities um it's ingrained into police officers especially police officers right uh medical health experts uh this this is one of the reasons why you know black folks uh, you know, die in hospitals, right? We're looked at as making things up, especially women, black women, um, you know, or there's a high mortality rate, um, you know, so, th so this type of thing is, is built in. These are the things that are baked in to our society. Um, and I don't think it's easily overlooked that, and this is, that's why I wanted to highlight this because this is the type of stuff that I know, for example, I've had to endure, right? You know, the, 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 the concept and discourse around, you know, we've done so much for you. Okay. Uh, so why aren't you more grateful? <laughs> um, and I, you know, and that's, and that's, and that is something I think that, uh, you know, as white folks, I think you got to reckon with and see where that's really coming from. 
Um, because really, truly, what have you done for black people? And if really that's your only thing, like you think that somehow you doing help and helping uh, uh, people of color out, especially when this guy, you know, Adams, is, he's talking about, you know, helping black people out specifically. He, like He's naming it. He's not even... You know, being talking about ethnic minorities, he's being specific. Black people, like you, you know, what what specifically have you done? Like, what have you like gotten into that is just so uh, 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 messed up, and and that you have just gotten, you know, uh, you know, tattered for, you've gotten beat down for. Um, now, of course, he is. Uh, he cited a recent Rasmussen poll uh, as a reason for generalizing and condemning the entire black folks. Uh, the poll found that 53% of the black respondents, you know, of a thousand people uh, polled, agreed with the statement, it's okay to be white, uh, while 26% disagreed and the remaining 21% said they are not sure. Um, Adams also, who said he lives in a predominantly white neighborhood, that's problem number one right there. Uh, well, not number one, but it's definitely in the top 10. Uh, um, uh, white neighborhood, because of its racial demographics, added that he's been helping black people, quote unquote, all my life, but no longer will. Um, good. <laughs> good. Um, we don't need your help. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And that's the thing. He was discovered. Imagine if he hadn't said that, you know, rant. There are thousands, dare I say, millions of other white people who feel just that way. I have done all these things. I've read your books. I have, you know, invited you to the Christmas area. I have, you know, given you gifts. And what have you done for me? Nothing. You call me a racist. You bastards, you pigs. Um, and, and quite honestly, again, that's just it's coming from, again, a sense of superiority, a sense of white supremacy, a sense that I am higher than you. And so I'm giving you these morsels. Why aren't you grateful for these morsels? How dare you condemn me for, um, you know, being racist? How dare you call me a racist? Um and, you know, these are the things, right? These are the areas that I think are important. Um, there's an article that uh, came out because I want you to see how how far this stuff goes in, fam. Um, we're not talking about just the sticks and stones stuff. Now, of course, you know, people are reacting to the Dilbert thing and they're canceling this and this and that. And, you know, I'm sure Adams will be on the next Fox Friends news thing up, uh, you know, and he'll be on there doing his thing. Right. Because um, that's usually how it works. Right. It's like, you know, something like this comes out and oh, my goodness, white people are being discriminated against. And so how. um yeah. How, 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 you know, how, how, how are you doing? And I think that, you know, you should tell us your story that you've just been helping these poor people. They can't help themselves. Right. Uh, you know, they, they, they definitely can't help themselves. They need all kind of help. Well, the guardian ran an article. This was probably back in November of 2022. I'm going to post the link, uh, in the show notes as I always do. And also another good little thought piece from, uh, that I was reading from by Nina, Google uh, Golgowski. I know I'm butchering that last name. Uh, this is on um, the Huffington Post as well. So I'll post those two, just some decent reads. But the Guardian one uh, is looking at Steve Bannon as uh, inside Steve Bannon's disturbing quest to radically rewrite the U.S. Constitution. This is this is this is where it starts to get scary, fam. This is where this is where folks like myself are. This is what we're concerned about. 
Um, and if you don't have a subscription to The Guardian, uh, just pay for this article. It's a good read. Uh, Steve Bannon is throwing his weight uh, into a billionaire-backed operation to persuade state legislators to call a constitutional convention in the hope of permanently amending it. Now, the background on this is that uh, if you know anything about Bannon and you know anything about just his own conquest for power, um, he has wanted to bring down the current state of the United States or the current space of it, uh, or the, you know, kind of the, the, the current, the way it currently stands, burn it all down and then rebuild it back right in his image. Now he said this, these are not my words. These are his words. You can just look them up on YouTube. I would imagine most of those videos are still up. There's a good documentary on frontline. I love frontline, um, on, uh, on Bannon and um, you know, he, he has plenty enough videos out there too that he's just gone off about how the country needs to be rewritten in a very white supremacist um, notion. Okay. Um, so, you know, the goal of course is to turn the country into a permanent conservative nation, irrespective of the will of the American people. Now he's been bent on this, but here's what's happening. There are billionaires who are backing this. So there's money behind it. This isn't just some far out bar bet, drunkard, stupid um, rant. Okay, this is this is it is, the stuff's in motion. How is this possible? You ask. Well, powerful interest groups and a right wing donor or donors, I should say, are trying to use a never before used clause of Article Five of the Constitution, which gives state legislatures the power to call a constitutional convention of their own. Should two thirds of all 50 states agree? Let me repeat that. Okay. It's so Article 5 of the Constitution, which gives state legislators the power to call a constitutional convention. Should two thirds of all 50 states agree? Now, think about these, 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 these last midterm elections and who got elected. Think about where the House and Senate sits right now. Think about the laws that are being passed right now in Florida. If you're not familiar with that, just look up anything on New, in New York Times, Washington Post, and think about it the fight for African-American AP courses that are now being taken out, okay? Conservatives always want to rail against, you know, big government, big government. They're telling you what to do. They're telling you what to do, but then have no problem taking out POC BIPOC books, rewriting constitutional laws, right, that favor white people, okay? They have no problem passing laws uh, that make it a felony to teach these courses in places like Florida, okay? So this is happening. And it's not just Florida. Texas is coming along the ways as well. And just wait. If you say, well, damn, my state is blue, just wait. These elections are big. Republicans could amend the U.S. Constitution by controlling 34 state legislators. Um, and uh, they just need a two-thirds majority. Okay? Um, now, what would this constitutional convention promote? Policies limiting the size of government, interestingly enough, right? Limiting the size of government in speech, but not in action. Because again, we see that. We see DeSantos and 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 politicians like him um, basically intruding, right, on the will of the people. We see a Supreme Court that is politically active as well um, and intruding on the will of the people. Well over 65% of the U.S. Uh, feels that abortions should be legal, and that number continues to grow. Check out PRRI, okay? Uh, set ceilings on or even abolish taxes, free corporations from regulations, 
impose restrictions on government action in areas such as abortion, guns, and immigration. Right? I mean, the only thing in there that says it feels good is just the abolish taxes, but what's coming next? Right? Especially when you give corporations just free reign. We all know that corporations aren't going to do what's right or in the interest of the environment, of the people, especially ethnic minorities. Um... This is uh, Russ Feingold, former U.S. Democratic senator, quoting. He says, our goal is not to scare people, but to alert them that there is a movement on the far right that is quietly getting itself to a point where it will be almost impossible to stop a convention being called. Okay. Um, Rick Santorum. All right. This is something that can happen very quickly. We are a lot further along than people think. Okay. So this is this is, is endemic of a deeper problem of white supremacy. We are at a point in our time where we're past the talks. We're past now. It is a time where people can walk into. I'm sure y'all seen the viral video of you know of a white guy walking into Barnes and Noble and 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 calling out the uh, Black History Month display, saying that it was racist against white people uh, and it is a black supremacist you know, monument and they wanted more uh, support of white books and, and white history month uh, because they're being left out. That's where we're at right now, fam. That's where we're at. Um, and for those of you who don't see it yet, I don't know what to tell you because this is the stuff that I'm living. Um, so some, so some interesting things, just some interesting things that are happening, uh, which is one of the reasons I am thankful that my guest today uh, is on her new book, Remember Me Now, a journey back to myself and a love letter to black women. Uh, Faith Brooks just put this book out. This book just released, I believe, uh, a little over a month ago. And so I'm thankful that we're still here in Black History Month, at least here in this good year of our 2023. And um, I'm able to put this out. Uh, Faith Brooks is a writer, speaker, social worker, activist, and co-host of the Melanated Faith podcast i'll put those links in the show notes as well as well at white Hodge podcast go check out that podcast she engages in activism by working with nonprofits to find sustainable solutions to systemic issues as well as by being a strategist and a consultant for brands and influencers uh faith has served as the director of programs uh and innovation for be the bridge and director of women's empowerment for legacy collective in addition to leveraging her speaking and social media platforms to enliven collective liberation centered on the sisterhood of black women. Faith is crafting a communal space where black sisters can explore rest, tenderness, and softness. Uh, I was thankful to get her on the show. I was thankful that we could uh, arrange that time. Uh, this new book of hers is amazing. And I wanted to end on a good note, all the gloom and doom, even though I want the gloom and doom to stay with us. So hopefully we can do make some changes. But Faith is doing some amazing work. Enjoy this conversation and buy her book, support her, and check out that podcast as well. All right, fam, here we go. Well, Faith, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. I'm excited to dive into this book, but thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot uh, There's a lot to cover. Uh, I think the, the first question I want to ask is what I ask all my guests, and then we kind of just pop off from there. Um, and that is, what's been happening from birth to now? What has been going on? Uh, yeah, from, from birth to now, what's brought you to be the author that Faith is? 
You know, that's a great question, a really broad one. <laughs> um, so I'm sure this does definitely spur good conversation. I would say um, kind of what brought me here from birth to now is, you know, I, I have amazing parents mm. and they really believe in me. And since I was a child, try to um, allow my brother and I to do a lot of different things to kind of find our interest and harness our creativity. So I knew I loved to write and create. And my parents gave me an opportunity when I was young, about eight years old, to um, take my dream and make it a reality. And my dream at eight years old was to sell this little newspaper that I wrote myself. Um, I would write it each week and my mom would take me to Kinko's and make copies of it. And I would stand out in front of Kroger and sell my newspaper for 10 cents um, to anybody who wanted to read what I wrote. I like to say that's one of the birthplaces of my writing and my parents' confidence and belief in me um, being able to be a writer. But um, the journey from that moment of knowing that writing was something that I loved to now being an author has definitely been it's gone through many iterations and phases. Um, I definitely didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just knew I wanted to help people. So mm. um, I ended up getting my degree in social work. Right. And um, I um, also got my master's in social work later on. Come on. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, my journey with education and um, the interesting parts of it, especially um, being a black woman in um, primarily evangelical white evangelical spaces, which has its own Ooh. sets of issues. And so, um, so yeah, so from there, I just kind of started my career. I started doing case management and working with kids because I also really love children and um, case management was probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever had, but one of the most rewarding. And so I just kind of have this thing that I like to say is I, I spent my 20s saying yes to a lot of opportunities. Mm. I, I wasn't married in my 20s. I had a lot of time on my hands. So I said yes to just about anything that I could that felt like it aligned with, you know, who I am as a person. And so that opened up a lot of doors for me um, in my 30s. And so I was able to work as a case manager. I did several different jobs in the nonprofit field. I've always loved working in nonprofits and just kind of worked my way into different positions. And then when um, 2020 rolled around, I was writing as I always had been. I had always had some kind of a blog, Zanga, MySpace, all those different things before it kind of, <laughs> you on. know, yes. got, came into the iterations of what it is now. <laughs> yes. And um I was finally in a place where I was ready and the timing aligned for me to write a book. And so that was the year I got an agent. Um, the next year I got a book deal and a lot of things that I had been dreaming about throughout my twenties just kind of fell into place. Mm. I also got married, um, at 31. So a lot of things that I really wanted, um, to happen in life kind of started to fall into place for me. And so that's like a very, very, very quick, from birth up until now of yeah. where I'm at in life. I love it. No, I love it. And that's why I ask it because every, obviously everybody's response is different and uh, it's great to just kind of hear the, you know, where folks have ended up, especially, you know, for folks who, who write in, in all the forms, not just necessarily just like books, but blogs, essays, poems and, and whatnot. But let me go back a little bit. Uh, tell me a little bit about, cause I know you write in the book about Brianna Taylor, Sandra Bland, um, and, 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 where you in in terms of where you're at in regards to 
2016 election. I always keep coming back to that. We're in a different era now. We can also riff on Kanye. Um, and uh, but but when you think about where we've been in, in over the last 12 years, just as black folk, um, as folks trying to make a way, where do you see faith, theology, okay, faith slash theology mix in with the work that's being done now. I mean, you're, you're a caseworker. You got folks that you're dealing with, you're counseling, you're, you know, you're, you're engaged with that. Um, what's changed? I mean, what, and how does faith overlap with all this kind of racist stuff that we see coming out? Does that make sense? Kind of a long winded question, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to do my best to answer it how I like am interpreting it, but yes, please. I feel, I feel like for me personally, I've done a lot of anti-racism education and that's a big part of my career as well. And um, I wrote a book about it so people could kind of get their footing um, and learning what that looks like to be anti-racist. So I have a little anti-racism journal that I refer to people when they want to get started. Yeah. But I feel like where I'm at on this journey when it comes to faith, activism and all these things over the years is I've really um, found myself divesting from um, a lot of the things that I learned from white folks about God. And I've really found myself leaning into black womanist theologians and wanting to learn Ooh. more from um, black women, people that look like me about God and about faith. I, um, I tell people that I feel like I've always felt this connection to God, mm -hmm. to the divine, um, but church people, I can take them or leave them. And so, um, <laughs> oh. you can, you can, you know, you can find your own interpretation in there, but I just think for me, um, me finding my, my personal synergy and, and life with where I want to be and how I want to show up, mm -hmm. I have found a way to create that for me where it's very personal and it's less about how much I do. Um, where I need to show up to, who I need to impress, who I need to make sure knows that I'm doing this thing right or that thing right. Those are some of the exhausting elements of um, church for me. I think that there are some church communities that can be healthy, but I've also been a part of some that are really unhealthy. And so I've really shifted my focus for my personal life um, outside of just trying to be um, heavily active or a super volunteer in those spaces like I yeah. was in years past. Um, and when it comes to activism and how we're seeing things expressed now, you know, in 2016, I really am conserving my energy. I believe that I am gifted to educate people mm -hmm. and help people understand, help bring groups of people together to communicate and to talk. I can do that, but I, I really preserve my energy in doing that. And I've changed the method by which I do it, which means I don't do a ton of educating on social media anymore. Um, one thing that I feel like 2016 shifted Come on. Come on. <laughs> um, for um, a lot of us was seeing how many, especially if you're in the evangelical space, how many people around you um, really buy into this anti-black um you know, rhetoric. And it's people that, you know, for me, I had grown up with my whole life who I had never experienced treat me differently or, you know, be rude to me in that way. I might've experienced microaggressions, but I was too young to kind of know how to, you know, clap back, if you will. Right. Right. Um, but it wasn't people that I would have assumed would 
latch on to the rhetoric Trump was, you know, spewing out. And so once I saw that, I, mm-hmm. it really started to begin to feel like there was a chasm between me and many of the people that I had grown up with. Mm. And so how that shifted for me now in 2022, because I spent so many years writing blogs and doing activism work and talking about race. But now I'm really focusing on my own personal joy, rest, and peace. I educate how I choose to when I would like to on my Patreon, but Mm -hmm. it's not the center of what I write about. It's not the center of what I talk about. I realized that my most viral posts were posts where I was either frustrated, angry, I was tired of these people, and I was tired of the way that we were being treated. And the truth is, is that, you know, you can get a lot of virality with your anger. And I didn't have it in me for that to be the only thing that I wanted to talk about. I think my anger was warranted and I think there's a space for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I found that there wasn't really a lot of space for my joy either. Mm. And as a black woman, we're oftentimes expected to swoop in and fix it. And (laughs) I just got to the point to where I was like, you know what? (laughs) It's not my responsibility to fix it. And so I want to do what I can do to show up in the way that feels authentic and real to me. But I relieved myself of the responsibility that it's up to me to fix these things mm-hmm. because there's other people who need to get their cousins and talk to their people and do what they need to do um, to be a part of the solution. Yeah. So yeah. activism looks different for me now, but I feel like it's in a more realistic place for what I can handle. I like that. I like that. And just for the reference, I'm just for the people listening, uh, that journal, the anti-racism journal, questions and practices to move beyond performative allyship. Um, and I'll put a link for that in the show notes. Um, so, okay. So I, you know, I always, you know, meeting new guests. I love this. I'll just put it all out there. So I come out of right. Evangelicalism. I come out of, I worked for young life. I was part of a black church. Oh, wow. Um, like I was in it. Like I was sold out in it. I, I was the funny guy and you know, and it, but it would, I would always have to eat a part of me when I was told, you know, I can't stand those, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. But, but that's mm-hmm. not you, Dan, that's not you. You know, like you're, you're one of the good ones. Oh, you know? I totally had somebody say that to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or I, I, this was during the nineties and then the height of the, the Silicon. I was in the, I was in the Bay area and you're doing young life, California. And People would, you know, write $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 checks out their personal account. Like, if I can write you a check for $10 out of my personal account, I'm having a good day. But these cats <laughs> is writing $100,000, and they were like, man, I'm just glad you're there. You can keep these people out of my neighborhood. And I'm like, these people? So mm. to see that transpire all them years later into 2016, I felt like I had wasted so many of my years mm-hmm. trying to have performative Right. This this idea. I'll take this word in another direction, but there's a performative way of of really holding up white supremacy. Like, let's not say yeah. that we want them to learn. How have you seen that really begin? Kevin Garcia talks about, you know, bad theology kills. Um, how have you seen that play a role also in holding things up? I don't know if that makes sense it, 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 with with that question. But particularly in black and brown spaces where folks are still, I like to call them colonized to a very white way of looking at theology. 
Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting you talk about like young life and things like that. Like I I wasn't a part of it, but I know, I know what you're talking about in, in that that space. I I really feel like people who are kind of black people in particular who might find themselves still in some of those spaces. I know some people tell me they feel like they're called of sorts um, to those places and like they don't feel like it's time for them to leave. There's a lot of people I know, majority of the people I know that have left. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think it's because y- you have to, in order to exist in that space, you have to assimilate. And there's a little piece of you that you have to let die off. And I think so many of us, especially after 2016, made a decision that we're not going to let pieces of us just have to die off in order to please and appease white folks and uphold white supremacy, white theology, and all of those things. And so I really think that for many of us, in order for us to move about in the world in the way that we would like to freely, um, whether that's within a faith space or not, we have to have the space to show up as ourselves without having to compromise. The price of compromising and the price of assimilation is just too high. Mm-hmm. It's it's too high a price. And it's not even, and I think people know more now. You know what I mean? I think yeah. you what you're talking about is especially during the time of a lot of respectability politics, where if they see that, you know, we're, you know, good people, we are working, we're doing our thing, they'll leave us alone. And that's just not the truth, you know, like having your education, having a good job, living in the suburbs, none of those things have saved black people from being terrorized, killed, having, um, you know, unjust things happen to them. None of that saves you. Nobody cares where you live, what school you go to, any of those things. At best, sometimes it maybe has helped some celebrities in terms of having money, but even still, that's fishy at best. And so I think that for us having to realize that we have to make a decision about what we want to compromise and what we don't want to compromise on, what we can handle and what we can't handle. And because more people are educated, they understand microaggressions, they have words for what they were experiencing They now see like, hey, you know what? The price for assimilating is just too much. Respectability doesn't work for me. People are just opting out naturally. And so I think I think that's a healthy thing for people to do. And if you feel like you want to be in those spaces and you can handle it, hey, more power to you. Um, You know, I just know that like I have to limit um, the amount of time I spend in spaces where I feel like. I'm, you know, my energy is going to be depleted from, from interactions that don't feel like they're going to be the best for me. So, yeah, but everybody's different. <laughs> this is, this is good. This is good. Well, let me uh, fast forward to something because I, uh, I think this also plays a role in how have you navigated the the pandemic or how did you, how did you navigate a pandemic depending on how you, you view it and see it? Well, during the pandemic, it was an interesting time, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. But I quarantined at home. My mom um, was with me. She was living with me at the time in Atlanta. And um, I was working for a racial literacy organization. And so, as you can imagine, during this time, people are, you know, 
they're they they decided that they cared about race for a hot second and so <laughs> right um you know we're being flooded with requests people wanting to you know speak to our organization to have us come out train all this stuff so we were actually really busy so working from home i was you know sometimes working from 9 a.m to 9 p.m it was just it was a lot going on and so it was a very busy time um, in my life where I, you know, was doing a lot of race related work, um, on my work stuff, stuff, but then also personally. So I was doing a lot of education online, a lot of education on Instagram and all these other things. And so in many ways, I would say it felt like a lot of things are going right, um, in my life in terms of the ways that I was able to engage with people and feed into my passions. I was writing more and just doing things that I really loved to do, but, one thing I talk about in my book, Remember Me Now, um, is how I felt like I lost myself doing so many of those things, trying to show up for everybody, um, trying to um, be a great employee and do all this stuff that I wasn't even addressing my own pain. Yeah. Because a few months before the, um, a few months before um, a lot of the, you know, different things had come to light, I was raped and I found myself busying myself Whoa. with work. Whoa. I was working and working and working and working. And so wow. I wasn't really addressing my own pain. So I I found myself highly inspired to to write during the day and write about these things in activism that I deeply cared about. And but then at night I was you know, so broken and torn up and crying and trying to gather myself. And so I talk about how I, I wrote this book from a place of my greatest pain um, and also how I have been able to find joy, you know, on the other side of so many of these things. But I talk so openly about it because Black women are not new to experiencing great trauma, but also having to just show up with a cape on and being a part of helping to fix it all and solve these things and, you know, care for everybody else but ourselves. And mm. and so, you know, this book is also my petition to black women to care for themselves, to take some time to slow down, to stop, to to ask yourself, what do I need not what does everybody yeah. else need? Not does what my job need from yeah. me or all these other people. What do I need to heal? What do I need to feel rested and yeah. supported and safe and loved? And yeah. and so those are things that I think, you know, I began to start exploring and uncovering during the pandemic that kind of led me on this personal, you know, journey of healing. I love that. And I and I love that that that's so much the premise of the book, because I think so oftentimes, particularly folks who are working in work, like this, whether it be, you know, you're helping other people, whatever that looks like, medical field, activism, teachers, um, we hear more work. Like, it's just like more, go do this, go do that, go do this. And it's like, rather than part of what I've been looking at is just how capitalism has, has, has really infiltrated, you know, 
everything about my own being, like, you know, how I feel about my self-worth, how I feel about my, you know, my productivity and how those things are related. Like maybe I shouldn't be taking a nap. Maybe I shouldn't be listening to my body because I got to keep pushing. Add on the intersectionality to that. And it's like, as a black man, you know, don't get caught sleeping. And this really started actually with Killer Mike's trigger warning, his little series that he has on Netflix. Um, and he talked about, I think one of the, one or the two of the episodes just talked about just how sleep and black folk, we don't, you know, and just resting, like it's, it is just not, a lot of it is innocent in our vocabulary. Um, so I've appreciated you being able to, you know, like you said, self-care, being able to take care of ourselves and being, being kind, uh, to ourselves. Um, all right. So you dropped a, a, a big one there a few minutes ago. You, you correct me if I heard you, you wrong. You said you were raped. Yes, I was. Oh my God. Um, I don't know how much you want to get into that. That's, that is, that's horrific. I, and, and yes, absolutely. I can, I can see why that, um, yeah, that, that, uh, that was, oof. uh, I, I think the, I think the reason, you know, when my family, um, you know, asked me, do you really want to, do you really want to write about that or, you know, talk about that in your book? And I said, yes, I do, because I know I'm not the only one who's experienced this. I know that as a black woman, a black woman that's grown up in faith spaces, this is not something that is new to any of us. Yeah. And I think I really wanted to set the table to create a place of healing. And so I don't focus, you know, a whole lot on, um, the incident as much as I do my journey processing through it, mm. my journey healing through it. And I think that's my biggest goal and hope is that people can read the book and be inspired to heal, to choose themselves. And that, you know, throughout the book, I write poems and, and letters. And I'm, my hope is that people would see themselves as I'm writing, they would see themselves in the poems and the letters and be encouraged because I truly do believe that there are deep moments of pain, but that also there is hope on the other side of those things. And there was times I didn't even feel like I could hope. I didn't even know if I would, you know, have the things that I desired to have, if I would have a life of, you know, peace without feeling like I was constantly tormented by nightmares and all these things. But eventually the peace did come and the hope did come. And I believe that for us as black women, we have to hold on to that belief that what we need and desire can come, you know? And so um, I just think that that's the hope that I really would like to offer to other people that what you desire, what you hope for, what you're believing for the pain you're experiencing, isn't going to last always. Um, it will, you will be able to come to a place of healing and wholeness. Uh, what drove the book and, and, and even backing up even before that, how did you as an author go about like finding your voice? Uh, you know, as, as editors always say, it's like, you know, find your voice. But how did you come to yours? Cause there's definitely a, a, a premise throughout the, the, the book. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time writing mostly like to myself, journaling, whatever, hmm. um, 
I just did a lot of that. And I blogged online too. So I was finding the topics I wanted to talk about. I was finding what resonated with people. When I wrote about race, it resonated with people. When I wrote about relationships and singleness and trying to figure, find my way that resonated with people. And so I started to just try to write about my life and where I was at about, you know, just different things, different topics. And so I just kind of gave myself the opportunity to write as much as I could. Sometimes those things made the internet. Sometimes they didn't. Honestly, for my blog, I had more drafts written than I did blogs published. And that was okay. It's a part of the writing process, learning your voice and all of that. Another great thing was I had my mom read a lot of what I wrote and she would give me good feedback, Mm. especially if I was writing about race. She would she would give me feedback on like, you know, what? I see where you're going with this. I'm not sure anybody's going to be able to necessarily hear what you're saying because of the way you're approaching it. And so she really taught me how to approach complex and nuanced subjects um, in a way where I could captivate audiences of different people, people who might have agreed with what I said or disagreed. And um, that was a skill that took a long time to learn, but I'm really appreciative of her kind of helping me hone in on that. And so I had a running document on my computer that I would write and I kind of would write different moments from my life. And I would say to myself, this is going to be kind of like my memoir of sorts from my 20s. I'm going to write, you know, put this in a book one day. And I would just have this running document of things I wanted to put in a book one day. Yeah. Yeah. And so when it came down to many years later, um, it was time to write a book book proposal for this book for Remember Me Now. I went back to that document. I went back to different iterations of what I thought I wanted to write about. And the book is a more evolved grown-up version of what young me was trying to write about. So some of the themes I wrote about in the book are themes that really were bubbling up inside of me for many years. This is just the, you know, this is just the the version of it that's going to get birthed out into the world. And so I think it takes a lot of intentionality as a writer to keep writing, to not give up. You get yeah. feedback for your writing. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard though, because you know, I think more people should know this. Like you really have to swallow your pride um Ooh. whenever you're um, you know, wanting to be a writer because you mm. write it and you think it is amazing. I right. did so great. I, I killed it. <laughs> and you have an editor, you know, look at it and then you know, you get your work back and it's a little bit marked up and there's lots of questions and feedback, and you're just not prepared for that. And so I think that oh, yeah. You know, writing is it's it's a journey. And I think if you're willing to go on the journey of of growing as a writer and keep writing, accept feedback and keep honing your craft, I think it can be, you know, really successful for anybody who decides that's what they want to do. But you can't give up and you have to be consistent and persistent. I love that. I love that. This is consistent and persistent. That is that is the truth. Um, well, and that's and, and that's the way it reads. Right. It's like as I think about just the narrative that you are, are trying to craft. Um, and I love Dante Stewart's, you know, like his uh, blurb uh, for this is like, you know, there's hope. It's tragic. Um, and, you know, it's 
there's a lot of weight in this. And so I, I like the way it flowed through. Um, but let me ask you this. So you, you, you write a little bit about, um, your activist grandparents and ancestors. What, what are some things you've gleaned from that, um, in your own process of just chronicling, you know, your own journey, if you want to share a little bit on that, please. Yeah, I think that one thing I learned, especially as I got older and decided to forge my own relationship with my grandparents was one, how crazy cool genetics, you know, is um, because there's just so many things that I see um, about myself just within who they are and um, interests I have and passions I have that I just had no idea um, they were it was connected to them, too. And. And so it's been really cool, even within my own career choices, to see how a lot of that mirrors my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather and I are very close. He is a very wise man. Mm. He's never been um, a religious person. He is um, definitely just believes in the universe and um, and is just this incredibly wise soul that. I owe a lot of my maturity and outlook on life to he's just amazing. And his story of working in the community, um, doing, a, helping the pioneer head start and, um, and talking to me, he's had so many different talks with me about early childhood education and the importance of it. And had just his knowledge around the subject has deeply, deeply inspired me. He spent his entire career consulting and working with people to help further um, show that evidence shows it's really important for us to have early childhood education. And he's been, you know, he spent his career fighting for that, fighting for more systems to be put in place for children to begin their academic journey sooner. And I see his his care and the things that he took his time to fly all around, you know, the States for, to be able to teach and educate about. And I look at my own life and I think, wow, like there's, there's the things that I'm passionate about when it comes to seeing black women flourish mm. to um, talk about how, you know, we need to really address these racist systems. You know, I've seen these things that, you know, take place for kids in foster care. I've seen the different elements of that. Um, I've seen ways we can approach um, solving some of these um, issues through macro level social work. And so there's a lot of different things that I've seen and experienced and want to be a part of the solution for. And I'm inspired by my grandfather who did the same thing. And he had his lane of what he was passionate for with early childhood education. Mm. And so as I look and I see myself in my passions, I see myself in him. And I think, understanding my grandparents has helped me understand myself more Yeah, because I come from them and they persisted and fought and got to a place to where they could achieve their dreams. And my grandfather tells me all the time, you're going so much further than I did. And I couldn't be more proud, but I wouldn't have gotten to go this far if it wasn't for him. And so I just really feel like we have to, give our grandparents their flowers mm. and sure there might be some you know things people want to look back and say well they could have done this better and that better and whatever but they paved the way and yeah. they paved the way during a time that it was much harder Oof. um to live and so 
I have a great deal of respect, admiration and gratitude for my grandparents. I wouldn't be who I am today without them. And I think that's one thing that as we look at the change of the guard of generations, it's we can believe that we can approach things differently and we can still love and respect and honor where we came from Mm. and who we came from because we wouldn't be here without their sacrifice. So to me, the greatest gift that I can give myself and that, you know, um, if I have kids one day, like the greatest gift I could give them is knowing their family history, knowing where they come from, Mm. knowing who they, you know, come from and what their great grandparents' passions were and why it is so important for them to understand the beauty of black history, the beauty of our legacy and what we're fighting for. I love that. I love that. Um, Because that's powerful, right? I mean, I think about just, you know, like you you just said it, like folks who fought back, you know, even 50, 60 years ago. I mean, that that was a completely different time um, in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, And not just that in the world. I mean, and you you go all the way back to, um, you know, 19th century, 18th century. Somebody said that, you know, black folk, if they ever invent time travels, like black folk can't go back in time. It's just like, (laughs) what time are we going to go back to other than about, you know, 4,000 years ago or something like that, you know, somewhere where we, you know, we still had land and and, and king, but, you know, we ain't going to go down, you know, any, any road like two, 300 years ago. Um, so you're absolutely right. I think there is something about the ancestors, uh, and the grandparents, um, talk to me a little bit about, and this was, you know, right at the beginning of the chapter, you talked about, you know, homeschooling. Um, I resonated very well with you in, in regards. I know you said you were born in Chicago. Um, but you said you moved out of Texas. Um, mm-hmm. now I, I don't tell many people for this, but I was actually born in Texas. I consider California home, <laughs> but I was born in Texas, a small rural town. I was the only black kid in about a 40 mile radius. But what was your experience like? I mean, you, you share some, some thoughts and you talked about homeschooling, which I love that whole thing uh, was interesting and whatnot, but talk to me a little bit about, about that in that era. Yeah. So, you know, I would say it's kind of interesting because I feel like the way Texas is now in terms of the governor that Texas has with Abbott and all of that, it is so different than what it was when I was younger Hmm. and different. I would say with like that kind of, that kind of like blatant, just not great leadership that they have right now. That wasn't what I was experiencing as a child, but also mind you, I was a child. So I was, really paying attention to politics so um what i can say though is that i had a pretty good experience in texas okay i did experience some racism i write about it in the book but most of it was like subtle microaggressions i wouldn't say that my family ever experienced anything like crazy in terms of um like not feeling safe in our home or anything like that. We pretty much grew up in middle-class neighborhoods around Texas. And for the most part, we were in, we always lived in diverse neighborhoods, which I think was kind of the key. Okay. Now I do think that even with our street or something being diverse, we were surrounded by a lot of white folks, more white folks in Houston than we were probably in Dallas. Dallas had, we were surrounded by uh, more black folks just because of our, Uh, the church we were going to at the time, different things of that nature. Yeah. But Houston was very diverse. And so I actually have a lot of love for Houston. I love the city. I love the people. 
I love my friends there. Um, I grew a great fondness um, for the city there. But I also, you know, experienced the microaggressions that come from being in homeschool communities, especially evangelical homeschool communities where, you know, they don't really see a lot of black people and their perception of black people is what they see on TV, what they see on the movies. And so, you know, there's a lot of assumed understanding about who black people are, who I was, you know, and so people approached it from that perspective. And so I would say that's what made it difficult being a black person in those spaces, going even into college. I dealt with a lot of assumptions about what people thought about black people based on the media, but they really didn't have black people in their lives. And then the Mm. people that, you know, I did get to know the white friends I did have, you know, while I love them dearly, the language they picked up, which is obviously from, you know, family, friends, whatever, was that, you know, I'm, I'm just faith, but also like, you're the black, white girl, you know, you're different than them. You're not, you know, you're not ghetto. You're not doing this and that, you know? (laughs) Right. And all of that is just, once again, like it's just stereotypes, you know? And so it really comes down to, you know, we all have biases that we have to address. This happens to everybody. Everybody has biases. And I dealt with people's own biases towards, you know, me towards black people. And so I I had to navigate that a lot in Texas. I would say now as an adult, I don't live in Texas anymore. I mean, I do miss Texas because of my friends personally. Sure. Yeah. Um but now I live in Maryland and we just elected our first black governor. So excited about that. Um but it it matters to me a whole lot about like who my elected officials are. It matters to me that you know I am in a place to where I feel safe, yeah. you know, and like I have um, some semblance of leadership locally that cares, you know, um, that cares about me. So I would say that there's a lot that has shifted for me personally uh, in terms of how I approach where I live and what I'm expecting out of, you know, the state that I live within. Um, but growing up, I would say it wasn't too bad in Texas. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. That's good. And, and and I always say, you know, that's the thing I do say is that, you know, I think if I, I had been in a bigger city, I mean, our entire town was oh, yeah. 1200 people. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a small town. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was rough. I didn't even know that nigga was a derogatory word until the second grade. Cause I just Whoa. thought it was, <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was you my nickname. S- you know what? I never, I always pass through the small towns in Texas. I'll tell you that much. I knew, I knew not to go. I knew not to stop there. Right. I knew that. I stayed in the me- big metropolitan areas, but the small towns, I didn't touch them. That is just it. And uh, yeah, I, it, but, but I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad that was a good thing. I think if I had ended up in San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, I think I would have been uh, in, in a different situation. Um. I like this uh, this letter that you write to your your sister who has questions. Um, this is let's see what chapter this is. What is this? The courage? No, I'm forgetting what chapter it is. I know it's. I think it's uh, four. No, three. Right. <laughs> I want to make sure. I don't even. It I don't have it in front of me. No, no okay. it's all good. It's all good. It is chapter three, page forty-seven. At least the copy that I have. And I resonate with this a lot because I. 
Uh, you know, I wasn't taught to ask good critical questions. And you start that mm. off by asking you are allowed to ask questions. This is the time to question what you've been taught and what you've observed in the world. Your journey of discovery may lead you back to some things you previously believed in. This is where it gets. Or you or maybe it will lead you away from some of the things you thought were true. That mm-hmm. right there, um, I think is a powerful message because so often and I'll speak from my experience. I can't speak for everybody, but I was not taught like you can go out and journey. You can do whatever you want. Go sow your royals, do whatever you want. But when you come back, you damn sure better believe the same things mm-hmm. that we taught you and whatever, you know, you see, you know what I'm saying? Whatever that the, the, the we were. Um and that's powerful that you that that there's that permission, dare I say that word, uh, given. What's that been like for your own process and journey? How did you arrive at that level to be able to say something <laughs> like that um, and to lean into that and to be OK? Because, I mean, and, I mean, of course, now is a, is, is a grown grown ass man, as they say, um, I'm, I'm open to that and I'm open to. Yeah. I hope I'm not the same person a year from now that I am right now. I hope I've grown. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are not the communities I came from. Change was feared. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what? I, I, I came out of my evangelical university and it was an Assemblies of God um, okay, school. I didn't even okay. I didn't even know what the Assemblies of God was. And I went to that school. Come on. I just I just went because my brother was there. Yeah. Um, and so. Um, and my brother, big brother and I were, were like the best of friends. And so, um, I just was like, all right, I don't even know if I want to go to college. He's there. Let's go. So (laughs) I had no idea what I was getting into. (laughs) I had no idea that I was, um, signing myself up for a very interesting experience. Lots of microaggressions and racism to be had as, as my time went on there. Yeah. But I left there. Um, we had to do chapel every day. I think Monday was kind of almost like a Bible study. And then the rest of the days it was chapel every day, like a little chapel service. I remember leaving and I told my mom, I said, I am like churched out and hmm. Jesus out. I had to go to church every day and they would make us go to church on Sunday, which sometimes I would cheat and I would sign out like I'm going to church, but I would just go sit at a bookstore and like, you know, work <laughs> right. and do something else. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, but I just felt like it, it, it felt so regimented. And I was like, man, if this is really what like faith is, is having to go to church all the time and live in this bubble, I don't know that this is working for me. And yeah. so I spent my twenties asking questions. Mind you, I was still really active in church. I had helped start a church plant. Um, I was doing stuff in youth ministry, which I really loved and was always passionate about. Yeah, I was still doing those things, but I was asking questions. And I remember thinking that like my mom, who is just, I love her so much. She's such a woman of faith and prayer. And I admire her so much and have deep respect for her. Um, She, I remember telling her like, I have so many questions. Mm. And I thought that she might be, you know, disappointed or you know like you know sad that I was like I don't feel like going to church or but she wasn't any of those things she actually would say things to me like I'm glad you're asking questions Hmm. you know and and it was really freeing because I had times when I wanted to go to church and I went and I or I didn't want to go to church and I didn't go and 
I started asking so many questions. So for people who are now kind of in this, like, you know, the, of course the buzzword is like deconstruction or whatever. I felt like I, I left, I left college, like dismantling everything that I had learned. And it was just like year after year after year, I opened my mind up to questions and to ask questions. And I still don't have it all figured out now. And I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. But I always keep myself open to asking questions. And the more questions I asked, the less I felt tied to having to be a certain way, having to do these things a certain way, having to approach God a certain way, having to do things in a formulaic way. Okay. I got to sit down for 15 minutes. I got to do my devotion. I got to do this. I got to, and then I got to call these people or then I got to go to that small group. Like I decided that I wanted to explore different aspects of life and faith and God. And I gave myself permission when it felt like I didn't want to, Mm. and I just needed a break or I felt like being quiet, you know, or I felt like, you know what? I'm just going to take a step back. Like I just gave myself permission and it took a while. It took a while to give myself that permission. But once I did, I really felt like I found a deeper connection to the divine. I felt like I found a a deeper connection to exploring my faith when I wasn't trying to regiment myself to fit into a box. Somebody said I needed to fit into. And I think that's where the freedom came. And I think I have a little, I have encountered some, some unhinged, you know, pastors and church leaders, but I have to say, because my parents were not people who were very like super strict and super religious to the point where, to where it was like, if you deviate from what I believe we, we, you know, we're on the outs. Like my parents and I do not believe all the same things theologically. Yeah. And we have, this room to love each other for okay that's cool like that's how you feel that's how i feel okay and that's that like and so having that freedom in my own personal life during my time of exploration has helped me to want to offer that to other people yeah because it's healing and it's and it's freeing and people need that that is the truth. That is the double truth. And I would definitely say that I think for us in the black community, I, you know, again, and I keep coming back to us just simply because um, I, I, I don't the circles that I ran in in California, like I said, were very, very fundamental. And there was no there was no real room to question components mm-hmm. of that. And so, the again, the permission, uh, the ability to sit with tension, the ability to sit with doubt and ambiguity. I mean, that um, that's not something that I got until really my forties. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, by then I'm just like, Oh, we can be okay with that. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. the whole idea of apologetics and we got to defend the faith. And I need to have an answer for every single thing that some godless secular heathen atheist right out there right. Uh, is going <laughs> to ask me. Um, and now I've just come to the point that I, I don't have a lot of answers. I think it was one of the reasons why I think I frustrated my editor on my last book. Cause I was like, I'm not going to give a pretty ending <laughs> to this yeah, book i love it <laughs> i believe in that um all right so i love the chapters on hair this is this is great um you talk a little bit about this in the latter parts of the chapter about work and you said you have a high capacity for work mm-hmm. you said you even like even when people slack you you know you you'll pick up that 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 mm-hmm. load um as i'm thinking of, you know and, and definitely i think about 
where we're at now, I think about this, just so much work to be done. My partner works as an HR director, specifically working with nonprofits, POC centered, right? DEI, the mm-hmm. whole night. So, so, you know, she's really into working with folks who are doing the stuff, but that they don't necessarily have the, the, the administrative side for HR. Mm-hmm. And once upon a time, I used to think if we can just get a queer, black, trans, whatever woman in place or man in place, the leadership top down is going to come. And wow, on the other side of this thing, seeing that, you know, there's still so much dysfunction. There's still so much mm-hmm. colonization. There's still so many unhealthy people uh, that run organizations. And I'm not knocking mm-hmm. anyone per se, other than to say so much of it comes back kind of this, this, again, this, this work and work, Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about life being busy, uh, and you hear obviously in this chapter on, on pages 148 and 149, uh, for those following along, it says we are all hustling. You're talking about the pandemic, uh, you know, and then you got the assault, uh, George Floyd, uh, aspects of PTSD. What do you do personally to, to, to unplug? Um, do you take a Sabbath or Sabbath? Do you unplug from technology? I know you started, you, you know, you pulled back from uh, like social media and whatnot, but mm-hmm. how are you unpack that? Because the work I feel like is just ongoing. I can't imagine it being in the therapeutic field. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure um, at that phase of my life, the way I was working was, insane. I will never work that hard in my life again. Hmm. Um, it was beyond. <laughs> and I, I, the, the achiever in me, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I got oh, a lot of great fulfillment out of achieving a lot of things, but I worked at a, a very unhealthy pace. And so I'll, I, I have really committed to myself to honor myself by not working, um, anymore at a pace that's unsustainable long-term. Uh, what I have decided, though, for myself when it comes to self-care um, is really just like giving myself space to do nothing, whether that's nothing and I'm just sitting in the quiet with my dog or I'm just binging and watching a show, you know, like watching a bunch of episodes and I'm just not thinking about anything. I like to watch reality TV. And so. Um, it might be like a love series or some random show and I don't have to think about anything important. Um, just kind of disconnecting my brain from go, go, go mode because I'm a, I'm a problem solver by nature. Mm. And, and, um, I feel like I have to put myself in a position where I'm not solving any problems. I'm not thinking about anything deep. I'm just being, and the other way that I like to rest is um, through cooking. Yeah. I like, I love to cook. I love to create new things. And I also enjoy being by myself. So um, even though uh, my husband and I um, have been married for um, a year now, I still really enjoy my own company. And so it is not, um, it is not foreign for me to just go to a coffee shop by myself, take myself out yeah. to eat, just do something um, where I'm just in my own space with myself. And I remember this woman said something like, I have to live with myself for the rest of my life. Like I, I better like who I am. Mm. And that's just something that really stuck out to me because it's true. You know, I do have to live with myself for the rest of my life. And 
I want to cultivate her, love her, support her, cherish her, give her time, ask her what she needs, show up for her and respect her. If I cannot figure out how to do this for myself, then I cannot encourage and empower other people to do it either. Mm. And so it is really important to me to constantly find these ways of doing it. It doesn't mean that some seasons are harder than others to find this time of cultivation, but you can never underestimate time of quiet and solitude and having five or 10 minutes of quiet just to yourself, just to breathe, just to let yourself think a little bit. And I have found that those have been really key ways that I've been able to harness my emotions, find my breath, learn how to regain my own personal stability and um, just take steps towards, you know, rebuilding my life in the areas that I need it to. And I think that's one of the, those are some of the most important things I've done over the years. I love that. I love that. Where do you, where do you see us uh, both as a people, as a society uh, or filling in any other blanks for that matter, um, headed to in the next uh, decade? I know that's a big question. It's loaded. But I'm going to put some futurologist on you. <laughs> it is a loaded question. I think I see black people kind of returning toward uh, the mentality that we had um, around building and growing wealth within our own communities. Think mm. back to your black Wall Streets. Yeah. Yeah. Before we were terrorized out of our own uh, land and wealth. Um. I I think I see us definitely returning back to becoming our own funding sources, building up black banks and uh, small businesses. Black people have a lot of buying power. The problem is, is that we don't always spend our money within our community. And I can really see us returning to spending more of our dollars within our own community. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of black people that are even right now creating their own like home site, home sites and neighborhoods. And, um, you know, I see that happening. The same thing with education. Um, black kids will get pulled out of schools. And if they're not going to, you know, charter schools or or private schools where they feel like their their education is um, up to par, then more black kids will be homeschooled, um, I believe. And um, I honestly think HBCUs um, over the next 10 years will see um, even more explosive growth. Um, A lot of this goes back to, I feel like black people us coming home to ourselves and home Mm. to our communities. Mm. Um, and not feeling the need to have to assimilate and also not letting go of a lot of internalized anti-blackness. Like we, you know, black restaurants were always, always going to be a long way. We, why are we so, you know, da, 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 fill in the blank. Y'all already know what the sayings are. Y'all already know what all of us have thought at different moments, but I really think we're going to make a lot of progress in what we see within the black community for our businesses, for our education, et cetera. And I think those are going to become really big priorities for families and parents um, is evaluating like, where are my children going to school? Who's educating them? What are they being taught? Yeah. Um, Especially with a lot of the anti-CRT debates. I really think there's going to be a big shift in education, a big shift um, professionally and, um, and in entrepreneurship. You already see it happening. 
I think in 10 years will be a lot further down the road. I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh. Um, folks, uh, the book is, uh, remember me now a journey back to myself and a love letter to black women. Um, been talking with Faith Brooks and uh, this has been an amazing conversation. It, 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 regardless of all the little, the mishaps or the drop calls, the dogs barking <laughs> in the background, all of that. Um, Faith, where can uh, folks find you? Uh, you know, they want to bring you out. They want to, you know, maybe buy, you know, 4,000 copies of your books and, uh, you know, get you a nice little fat honorarium and, <laughs> and you know, get you a, a spot on uh, one of the one of the, the, the news stations as a, as a pundit. Hey, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find me on any social media platform, Instagram, TikTok, um, Twitter, Facebook, all of those at Faith B. And I spell my name with two T's, F-A-I-T-T-H and the letter B. And that's where I'm at. And if you're wondering why my name has two T's, it's because my mom wanted me to be unique and different. She yes. gave me the option at five to change it. And I said, you know what? No, because I don't know anybody else with their name as Faith with two T's and I'm going to keep it. And so here we are today. I'm keeping it <laughs> <laughs> as an Enneagram four. We're talking about Enneagram, I'm Enneagram four. I love the uniqueness of that. So I, 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 I take all that. Um, Thank you. well, Faith, uh, Oh, before I go, yeah, I want to, well, before we go, I would, I, cause you're on, you also have a podcast, the melanated podcast, melanated faith. Yeah. Melanated faith. Yeah. Plug that. I want to get that, get plug that as well. Yeah, I mean, if you all listen to podcasts, join my co-host and I, Catherine Freeman, over at the Melanated Faith Podcast, and um, we're talking about all kind of different things, life, faith, career, and um, just what it's like to be a Black woman in the world today. So if you're interested to that in that kind of content, you can find us over on any uh, podcast platform you listen to at Melanated Faith. Excellent. Excellent. And as always, for those listening, if you're in the car, on your bike, working out, I always put the, all these uh, links in the show notes at whitehodgepodcast.com. Once again, Faith, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time and sharing a little bit of your heart, uh, your own journey, um, and just what you've put into this book. Thank you so much. We live in an era of unprecedented access to information, news, and media. But what happens when all that information leads you to suddenly realize you spent the majority of your childhood in a cult? Well, we can tell you. Join me, Jessica Goforth, and Kathleen Reynolds as we take you into the world of cult recovery after all the emotional, psychological, financial, and sexual abuse we experienced as part of Bill Gothard's Advanced Training Institute. On our podcast called Leaving the Village, we talk candidly about our journey out and interview other survivors whose experiences will boggle your mind as scandals continue to rock the twisted world of IBLP. Subscribe to Leaving the Village today so you don't miss a single episode.